The following program could have some filthy talk that would make a stevedore blush. And by the way, if a blushing stevedore or an embarrassed longshoreman is your want, well, you can get content like that at my newsletter, slate.com slash gist news. Actually, it's pretty clean and fun for the whole family. Tells you everything I did all week. It's Monday, January 28th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Yeah, of course, it's far too reductive for Washington insiders to look back at that shutdown and reduce it to winners and losers, right? This is undoubtedly the weakest moment of President Trump's tenure in office. The president may be the commander in chief of the American military. But Nancy Pelosi now looks like the commander in chief of Donald Trump. Uh, I think Nancy Pelosi is obviously the big winner here. You know, a month ago, people were questioning whether she should even be speaker. She absolutely did. I, I share Jason's winner in this situation. It is definitely Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi. It's Nancy Pelosi. She did it. I wonder what changed about Nancy Pelosi. Because, you know, there was a time when the conventional wisdom was that Nancy Pelosi was kind of stiff, not nimble, not able to adapt to situations that demanded you change on the fly. So what was it? What changed after she faced Donald Trump? What did we find out that wasn't true about her in reflecting upon her confrontation with Donald Trump? All those critiques of her shortcomings that she was predictable and not exciting and sure implacable, but also unemotive. But now that she's gone up against Donald Trump, and outstrategized Donald Trump. I guess she brought all her skills and tactics to bear against Donald Trump. Turns out we were wrong. She's a bit of a master tactician, eh? To have overcome the stratagems of a Donald Trump. She matched wits with Donald Trump and somehow was not outmaneuvered. Again, she'd have been outmaneuvered by Donald Trump. I guess she's not the risk-averse symbol of caution. Oh, no. With uh, Donald Trump as her opponent, she revealed herself to be wily and clever, bordering on the lethal, as proved by her mastery of this showdown with Donald Trump. Okay. It is clear that what is going on is that while Pelosi's flaws were never quite as flawed as we had been told, and many Democrats, by the way, were doing the telling, We really shouldn't think we've discovered this Talleyrand-like negotiator in our midst, as shrewd as her spine is steeled. Maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration. Because in a two-sided negotiation, there is the other side. It's like one of those unbeatable Taiwanese teams in the Little League World Series. I mean, they do seem imposing, but they are beating up on 12- and 13-year-olds. Pelosi actually benefited, to be very fair to Pelosi, who I credit, She benefited from her weakness, and her weakness, fairly or not fairly, I think it's true that she's somewhat unexciting. But being unexciting was a great strength in this negotiation when you have an opponent who overexcitedly goes off half-cocked and runs around in circles and takes blame and assigns blame and deflects blame. You, all you have to do is just be kind of bland and somewhat competent. No wall. You win. Cautious. Dependent. Consistent. It's what the more firebrandish of Dems on the campaign trail took issue with. It's what they said they'd be voting against. And yet those are the qualities that slayed the dragon. Or maybe it's more like Nancy Pelosi was simply a large, immovable lance 
and the dragon was prone to dancing and flopping about until eventually he impaled himself. So what I'm saying is that Nancy Pelosi, master tactician, I'm perfectly fine with that, which is to say perfectly fine in a fight against Donald Trump. Just perfect. On the show today, I spiel about Roger Stone and those in his slithery orbit. But first, the other two is a new show on Comedy Central about this preteen pop sensation. Well, actually, it's not about him. It's about his two adult siblings. They are the other two. Now, the boy's sibling is an actor and waiter who has not been cast in much lately, so it's got to be hard when your little brother has a viral hit before sporting hair on his upper lip. Drew Tarver plays the other brother, Carrie, with a likability and also a vulnerability. The veteran improver stopped by to talk about his role and another two or three. So Drew Tarver is this very funny guy who I was researching in preparation for the interview you're about to hear, but I had one of those slight brain cramps and I kept coming up with a hit that told me he was a member of Howard Stern's Whack Pack, who was also a member of the KKK, and I realized I was putting into the search engine Daniel Carver, not Drew Tarver. I see. Both are from Georgia and say outrageous things. Yes, yeah. I, I Daniel mean, Tar- hopefully, Carver is dead. hopefully we don't share too much, but I could see that. I could see how you make but that mistake. All the whack packers. Is he the one you most identify with? Uh, oh, I don't know. Maybe uh, Beetlejuice. Is Beetlejuice one of the? I think he might whack the late pack? Beetlejuice. The late yes. Beetlejuice. Not in this environment, as we say. Right. Not right, at this right. moment. Yes. yes. So the show that Mr. Tarver is here to talk about is, I think it has a chance to become one of these have you seen the other ones because it's got a lot of things it's about a justin bieber-esque character but not about him what about his brother and sister yes we are plays i play carrie on the show carrie dubeck who is the older brother to a justin bieber-esque singer internet sensation and i am much more of a loser he's the talented one of the family and we are you know me and uh, helena york who plays my sister on the show we are the other two so we are just the (laughs) other two in the family that nobody cares about and are following him around and so the elements of the show that i think give it a real chance to kind of break through and there are so many sitcoms are well just the craftsmanship and joke in joke out but there are It's got a couple of things that I think are very appealing. One is the parts of the show where you interact with real media is real. You're really on, well, you're not on the real Today Show. Right. It's not a faux version of the Today Show. Right. It takes place. That's Hoda and Kathy. Yeah. It takes place in this world with these shows. Yes. And the songs that the Bieber-esque character sings are fantastically terrible, but in the way that's only like eight degrees off from the real song that's number eight on the uh, Billboard chart today. Yes, it is. I mean, Chris Kelly and Sarah Schneider, who wrote the show, who used to be SNL head writers, yeah. they wrote Do It In My Twin Bed, Back Home Ballers. They they had been doing these amazing comedic songs at SNL, and now they are doing them for this character whose name is Chase Dreams. We can keep saying Bieber-esque, or Chase Dreams. <laughs> Little Beeb. 
Beebs. Beebs. And they're so funny, but they are very, they, uh, because the guy who writes the music, the actual beats and stuff for them, writes for Troy Sivan. His name's Leland and writes for all these real pop well, acts. Well, that's how you have to do it. Yeah. 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 He's got, he has the hooks. It's all there. They treat him like a real engineered pop song and then they just write jokes for it and they're so, so funny. Yeah. So the, so th- to get a show like this exactly right, the creators, the actors can go in a very mean direction and everything is very nihilistic. Or they could try to find ways to give it heart. And I think the way they found to give it heart was two main things. One, the kid's not a monster. Like, you, you do kind of like the kid. Right. And the second thing is your character, not your sister, but your character is a very redeemable person. Right. I, I, relatable doesn't mean anything, and that probably has something to do with your performance, but you can watch the show and kind of hope most of the people die in a fiery wreck, <laughs> right, but right. for your entertainment, except for your character. Yes, I think they do a great job of making making it feel like a real family dynamic. Yeah. They don't shy away from any sweet, real family moments. And what would it be like if a real sweet kid just started... He became a an over, overnight sensation, and he was sweet, and you did root for him, but he was maybe getting bad guidance and stuff. And I mean, my sister, she's she's like a, a monster ish sometimes on the yeah. show, but they do really make the show have deep, real moments that the comedy sits around that you can kind of grasp onto, and they don't treat the... Fa- or they don't deal, deal with that character with a ton of cynicism. Right. So I did read one review which compared you to the Jason Bateman character in Arrested Development. Uh-huh. And I know the hair is a little spiky, but right. I think it's a little off in that he's more like uh, in a different universe yes. than they were. And you're at least... Well, a couple observations. Your character is at least adjacent to the wacky universe they're in. Yes. Your character isn't totally without flaws. Your character has got oh, some yeah. fucked up things about it. Yes, him. yeah. And the last thing would be is you're not always relied on for, say, reaction shots. Like, yes. that's, that was, he's a great actor, but that was his purpose in the show. Yes. We have to kind of see the th- show through him. Uh-huh. And that's not exactly what's going on in this show, would you say? Yeah, I, I would I would say that my character kind of goes back and forth between straight manning other people and being like, they're wrong, and, and himself being fully wrong about things. Right. So it was an interesting thing to take on acting wise because sometimes you're like okay am I smarter than this person or am I dumber than this person is my character smarter or dumber is it and consistent you kinda, do you have to always be consistent I fe- felt like I had to yeah cause, probably because I'm not I'm very I don't even really view myself sometimes as an actor uh-huh. I'm just kind of I started doing sketch and improv, and and now I am on the show. I am an actor. So is this the character you've played longest? Because you were on, what's that, Baj- Bajillion, Bajillion Dollar, Dollar Properties? Which did go for three seasons, but this feels... So what, the thing is, once something on CISO, how, how can you kill it? Like, what's I the know. mechanism to say it's not getting ratings? I know, right? Like, we don't know. Uh, <laughs> there's still a fourth season that has yet to come out, because CISO just went away. and <laughs> the, we, lost we, the, the lost Bajillion. <laughs> the lost Bajillion. Everybody's on, on uh, trying to torrent it. <laughs> But yeah, it's huge in Romania. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess what I'm saying is I felt weird being like, okay, uh, can we stop the scene? Am I smarter than this? You know, I think it just the the writers, Chris and Sarah are so good that 
they, you know, if I ever had a question of like how how dumb should I be right here or do I know better than this? Because yeah. the character knows better, but he's just desperate. So I think he because he's an actor who maybe got one commercial where he smells a cat. Fart yeah, he that's... is just a desperate, desperate actor who's trying to figure out should I distance myself from this fame that I don't want, mm-hmm. but it is fame. So should I use it to help my career? This character parallels my life in a lot of ways. So it is when I first read it, part of me was like, wait, are you guys making fun of me? <laughs> because my my little sisters were the talented ones of the family. Yeah. I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Georgia, a small town called Glenville, which is a great place to grow up. But there's just not a ton of arts there. So you like, if you want to be funny, you get up in church and you say something funny about the wise men and see if you can get a laugh or, <laughs> or you wait till a frankincense humor. Yeah. Sort of yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Murr, what yeah. 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 Murr? Hi, there's so many animals in here. This is a birthplace, you know? And I grew up really, honestly, my family was a little bit religious. So my first experiences were with comedy were funny pastors and fu- mm-hmm. and funny Christian comedians. But my sisters were singers and dancers and were really the talented ones of the family. I couldn't sing. I couldn't dance. So my little sister, Caitlin, was on a... The year after American Idol, there was a spinoff called American Juniors, which mm-hmm. was hosted by Seacrest. My sister auditioned for it. My dad drove her up there and was like, we're going to get you on this show baby drove up there they got on the show then she instead of voting uh kids off they got in the top 10 they couldn't vote kids off because it was too mean yeah so they this was back then when they couldn't vote kids right off. right yeah yeah now, now they're fine with they're it. firing them out of a cannon <laughs> yeah. yeah um yeah this was 2003 much right. easier time on Simpler. kids yeah so she got on the top 10 and instead of voting kids off they would vote one kid on each week to a five-person group that simon cowell was going to manage they flew us all the whole family all of us rednecks out to la to sit on the side of the stage while she sang each week secret she would sing, Seacrest would throw to us, and we would be like, he'd be like, Tarvers, what did you think? And we'd be like, dang, we loved it. So we, I was kind of living this show. I was 17 at the mm-hmm. time. She continued, she didn't make it on the group that Simon Cowell was going to manage, unfortunately. But through that, I would, we would walk outside of the studio and people would go, Caitlin, that's my sister's name, Caitlin, Caitlin. And then they would turn to me and go, Caitlin's brother and they I was like this town is great you can just do nothing and people will sort of yell your name this is great um so at that point our family had kind of been exposed to Hollywood uh-huh. and I was like what do I like and eventually I started sort of figuring out oh maybe my attention is a need to make people laugh so I started doing stuff like that and found out about UCB and and now Caitlin's uh Big recording star. She, she yeah, <laughs> yeah, she's great. She's like on this season. I mean, she's still the talented one of the family. <laughs> uh, she the discernible, empirically provable talent. Absolutely, one. Yes. absolutely. And yeah, she's songwriting. She lives in L.A. She's songwriting. She was on this season of Ballers. She's doing great. And I'm still, I'm still trying to get people to know me not as Caitlin's brother. <laughs> yeah. Now, as part of your real life experience that parallels the show, did you come up against or did you encounter? one running joke on the show that everybody has a gay brother. Right, yes. Was that back in 2003, 2004, were we admitting that? No, we weren't, no. I was, it's a strange thing, like I, I play a gay actor on the show kind of dealing with the industry and whether you whether you're out or not or and in real life I'm a bisexual actor so it's like, it's so 
almost identical that it's very strange. But no, I didn't. I think in episode one, there's a, a line about bisexuality is now something we can admit happens. Exactly. <laughs> it very, it, 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 there's a joke about like how, how by, like, I think the joke is it's not 2014 anymore bisexuality is real now which right, is a right. funny joke on by erasure which is a very real thing that is the the creators are so good and and the room is so good at making you know queer jokes making fun of certain things and and yeah i was not out then and and very much you know have dealt with that along in my career, trying to figure it out and Carrie in the show is also very much trying to figure out himself and, and his identity. So it, it was an interesting thing to be on a comedy show on Comedy Central, but also be doing scenes where like it feels like this is really it's like so close and scary right yeah. now and vulnerable. Also, I may be wrong because I'm not exactly on the cutting edge of this, but it seems to me that it's possible that this show is the first that's exactly at that at the intersection of it's not just a queer show, but there's tons of stuff there that speaks to the moment of where we are. Yeah. But then there's also a ton of stuff that's, you know, probably would be classically in a lot of sitcoms about straight sex and stuff yeah. like that. So the thing that's new is a sitcom with maybe the sister character who's having sex with Beck Bennett and right. we're throwing that in our face while at the same time the same exact thing is going on with the brother and they're not backing away from it in any way. They're not making a joke about it. They show, you know, two guys lying on top of each other. Yeah, like yeah. That. It's yeah. a great... It, it, they don't shy away from anything in this show uh, sexually that maybe some shows will be like, no, we can't show two guys kissing. Yeah. And, and, but it also parallels, you know, that a lot of this stuff is sa- is the same for gay and straight people, you know? So it, it's, but it's definitely, it has a ton of queer, real queer issues in it that, that my character is, is dealing with that I would have liked to see in a show growing up to be like, oh, okay, yeah, there's, there's some stuff that once you come out, you deal with that still feels tough. Like what? Just sort of like internalized homophobia. You know, you've, you've been hiding yourself for so long that you can't really get it out of your system that, that you still deal with. And this character still deals with going through at one point he is at a bar and, and a guy says, uh, he comes up to Carrie and goes, Oh, uh, or ask him out on a date. And Carrie's like, Why didn't you ask me out a while ago? And uh, he's like, Oh, I didn't know you were gay. And Carrie says, Thank you. Yeah. And the guy's like, Ooh. And Carrie's like, Oh, no, no, I didn't mean thank you. Uh, just stuff like that. Yeah. It's, and, and it kind of like feels gross. And, and you just get to see that yeah. stuff, which I think is a cool thing for, yeah. for a show on Comedy Central. So will you know you've made it when your sister identifies herself as Drew's sister? Yes. I think that's what I'm trying to do. That's is switch the dynamic. <laughs> I will be finally okay. Good. Somebody when somebody when we walk out of a studio and somebody yells Drew and Drew's sister, I'll be like, okay, now I can stop. I'm going to move home. Drew Tarver is one of the titular other ones. It's sort of an offhanded titular, right? Because it's like referring to the other ones, so the main character isn't even referred to. But technically, he's the main character of this sitcom. That's really about the other characters, <laughs> Drew Tarver, the other ones on Comedy Central. Great to meet you. Nice to meet you.
And now the spiel. I've largely avoided getting sucked into the tanned vortex that is Roger Stone. He's like a puffed up Tinkerbell in that he needs you to believe in him or he'll fade away into nothingness, which was actually a fate I had hoped for him. So if you're a New Yorker growing up in the era that I was and paying some attention to politics, Stone was always there, omnipresent but unasked for, like a squeegee guy on the 59th Street Bridge. He sunk Spitzer. His messaging for Al D'Amato essentially lost him the Senate seat, and he was kind of the connective tissue between Donald Trump and Sorine lawyer Roy Cohn. And like a tissue, Roger Stone was often discarded, but then he seemed to blow back. Stone was House of Slytherin before J.K. Rowling ever cashed a welfare check, and his exploits intermingled with all that was sorted in Gotham for much of my youth. He also had forays onto the national scene, which is what SNL Weekend Update anchor Michael Che was referring to when he said this on Saturday. By the way, I googled this guy, Roger Stone, because... He looks like he pays black guys to bang his wife. And I found out, <laughs> I found out in 1996, he was forced to resign from Bob Dole's campaign for asking black guys to bang his wife. <laughs> Not kidding, look it up, it's fantastic. Hmm, muscular guys, sure. But I saw no reference to black guys per se. The National Enquirer broke this story in 1996 about Stone and his wife frequenting swinger clubs. And they took out ads advertising their wares. Here's the New Yorker prettying it up when they quoted an ad. Insatiable lady and her handsome bodybuilder husband, experienced swingers, seek similar couples or exceptional muscular dot dot single men. The New Yorker goes on to say, the ads sought athletes and military men while discouraging overweight candidates. That was the New Yorker. What they actually said in the ad was, no phonies or fatties. So there's plenty of advertising of the muscular. I didn't see any advertising I didn't see any references to Stone seeking out black men. In fact, there was an excerpt from a piece of writing about the D.C. swinger scene, which had Roger Stone disapprovingly look at a woman in a swingers club in a short skirt, an attractive white woman, and said she's probably slept with every black man here. And that was a problem for him, so it seemed. Anyway, my favorite detail from the National Enquirer story in 1996 about the swinger ads Stone took out on the net was this, quote, a website is a place on the internet where computer users who pay a fee can post any pictures and texts they want. Then anyone who visits the internet can access the website. Stone surrounded himself with a coterie of characters, some of his own invention. He placed operatives in the campaigns of rival candidates. He nicknamed one Sedan Chair 2. He actually did the thing early on in his career where he delivered pizzas to another campaign's address. One time he delivered 20 pizzas to the Edmund Muskie campaign for a fundraiser. He also hired for that fundraiser two children's magicians from the Virgin Islands and then invited dozens of African and Middle Eastern dignitaries to the fundraiser, even though they weren't invited. Weirdly, the Muskie staffer who had to sort out the the mess with the pizzas and the magicians and the ambassador from Kenya was a young D.C. housewife with a big political donor husband who seemed pretty unflappable. Her name, Madeline Albright. 
But with the Trump campaign, Stone had dealings with, let us say, like-minded blonde prankster slash parcel mouth Julian Assange. In the seven-count indictment against him, issued by the Mueller team, Stone is said to have worked with a guy named Randy Credico. Randy Credico is sometimes identified as a radio host. Well, he did have a show on the radio station WBAI for a while. WBAI is the kind of community-run station that's not exactly in the business of saying, you have to stop being on the air at WBAI. So Critico hosted his program live on the fly, as in Gadfly. Critico really does have classic lefty politics, very much into civil rights. I guess he thought Roger Stone was funny or interesting. Critico interviewed Stone, and Critico also interviewed Julian Assange. The great publisher, also from Australia, uh, Julian, Ass- Julian Assange. Thank you, Julian, for uh, joining us today. So Credico was suspected of being the go-between connecting Assange and Stone. Stone, according to the indictment, did not like that being out there. So he threatened Credico's beloved dog, Bianca, a service dog who he took with him to testify before the grand jury. Assange also advised Credico to pull a Frank Pantangeli, a reference to the Godfather 2 character, who conveniently got amnesia when called to testify before a Senate panel. Uh, Michael Corleone, uh, say whatever they wanted me to. Look, the FBI guys, they promised me a deal. So I, so I made up a lot of stuff about Michael Corleone, because that's what they wanted. But, but it was all lies. Uh, everything. Uh, Frank Pantangeli, by the way, in Godfather 2, slits his wrists in a bathtub. So when Stone was telling Credico to pull a Frank Pantangeli, what did he mean? Here is Roger Stone's explanation to CNN's Chris Cuomo. As far as Frank Pantangeli is concerned, Mr. Credico is an impressionist. That's what he does. And he does a very funny Frank Pantangeli uh, uh, imitation. Certainly not an implication that he should kill himself or that he should lie. Is that plausible? That old Raj was just after the classic Frank Pantangeli impersonation that Randy Credico wields. I cannot independently confirm the quality of Randy Credico's Frank Pantangeli, but I did have him doing a couple impressions. So in this this event, which was put on YouTube in 2013, don't know when it's from, Credico's brought onto stage by the Reverend Al Sharpton, and he's asked to do an impression of the Reverend Al Sharpton. The audio is not great, but this is really Al Sharpton. There is a man in town that could always fill in for me when I'm lost. He's one of my white brothers from the village, and he knows how to do me as well as me. So I want him to show you what he would have done if I didn't show up this morning. Randy Credico. And then, again, the audio is of poor quality, but not worse than Randy Credico's impression of Al Sharpton. And all the children in the neighborhood and the mothers would get together and they would make chocolate mud pie. Credico's Jesse Jackson got a slightly better reaction from the crowd. I was here a couple of weeks ago. Jesse Jackson could not follow the Reverend Al Sharpton, because he's one of the most difficult men to follow. I see Charlie Rangel trying to follow me. I want to say this is a great pleasure to be here today. This is all weird, right? Critico's white. Did I mention that? 
So you have him doing impressions of preachers and civil rights leaders before a civil rights crowd. Odd. But you know what else is odd? The fact that Al Sharpton in 2004 had a major campaign advisor named Roger Stone. That's right. The Village Voice's great investigative reporter Wayne Barrett confirmed, quote, Stone played a pivotal role in putting together Sharpton's pending application for a federal matching funds, getting dollars in critical states from family members and political allies at odds with everything Sharpton represents. He, Stone, also helped stack the campaign with half a dozen incongruous top aides who've worked for him in prior campaigns. And Stone even boasted about engineering six-figure loans to Sharpton's National Action Network. If it's weird and squirrely and discordant and made up of strange and usually muscular bedfellows, there is Roger Stone enjoying the romp. I do not know if he's innocent of the charges against him, but innocent is not a word that often applies to Roger Stone's tactics or motivations. That is at least the impression that I get, though, as in many of these things, it could be a very, very bad impression. That's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. They both have famous siblings. Pierre's brother, you may know better as the guy punched in the nuts by that orangutan that time. And when Daniel's sister was eight, she used to stand on her bathroom vanity and give herself full-throated affirmations. T.J. Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcasts. Her brother, Raphael Raphael, is the Florida undergraduate who screamed, don't tase me, bro, low those so many times. The Gist. I do have a famous sister as well. The other one in my case is Lauren Pesca. She played Miss Adeline in a School 5 production of Guys and Dolls. She was also in several George Lucas films, but quit vowing never to work in a Wookiee suit again. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening.